Welcome back to Marvel's Voices. I'm your host, Angelique Roche. For our final episode of season four, we are actually revisiting a conversation from season three with award-winning writer Jean Luen Yang, who is not only the writer of the current Shang-Chi series, but wrote a very special Shang-Chi short story for the upcoming Marvel's Voices Identity number one anthology available August 25th. Now, we talked to Gene when he was writing a Shang-Chi miniseries, and obviously, it was so great, he's still writing Shang-Chi. And of course, for those of you familiar with Shang-Chi, you already know that Marvel Studios' Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings comes out in just a few weeks. So how can we not highlight both this amazing writer and his work on this legendary character? Here's my conversation with Gene talking all about writing Shang-Chi. You seem to have always loved comics and you have like a story of like getting your first comic, but in your own words, like what was your first introduction to comics? Like how did your love shape for this medium? I fell in love with comics when I was in the fifth grade. That was when I bought my first comic and that was when I made my first comic. I bought my first comic at my local bookstore. We used to have these things called the spinner racks back in the 80s. They don't really have these anymore, right? But but back in the 80s, every local bookstore had one of these. And my mom bought a Superman comic off of the spinner rack for me. Uh, the comic that I actually wanted actually was a Marvel comic. I wanted a Marvel 2-in-1 starring the Thing and Rom the Space Knight. My mom bought me the Superman comic instead because she felt like Superman was like a safer superhero. And pretty soon after that, I started growing my collection. So when I was a kid, I was definitely uh, a Marvel guy. The vast majority of comics in my collection were Marvel comics. For whatever reason, in the 80s, I always thought Marvel was just cooler. But as I got older, yeah, as I got older, I, I started branching out. And eventually, I just read all sorts of different kinds of comics. You know, I loved Jeff Smith's Bone. I loved uh, the Hernandez Brothers' Love and Rockets. A bunch of different stuff. So what made you decide in fifth grade to also try to start doing your own comic? And what was this comic? Because now I'm curious. Well... My, uh, I mean, this is one of my favorite things about comics is that that dividing line between who gets to read and who gets to create is just super easy to cross. Even in the 80s, like nowadays, if you're a kid and you want to make a movie, you can with like a laptop, you know, or, or even on your phone. And if you want to cut an, like a music album nowadays, you could probably do it on your phone or on your laptop. But back in the 80s, there's no way. If you're a kid and you wanted to make a movie, it was practically impossible. But anybody then and now could make comic books. I remember looking at that Superman comic, that first comic that I bought, and, and feeling like I could make this, you know? It's just drawings on paper. I, I draw all the time. I can make this. So I had a best friend in fifth grade named Jeremy Kuniyoshi, who was also like a comic book geek, and we started making comics together. So at lunch, when our more athletic friends were playing tetherball, we would sit at the lunch tables and we'd make comics together. This makes me so happy. And now I must know, like, was there one main comic or you just like you were just across the board? We were we were kind of across the board. The The one that I'm probably most proud of was called the Trans Smurfers. Um, it was it's probably I probably shouldn't be proud. I probably shouldn't be proud because it's basically like me ripping off two cartoons that I loved and combining them together. But So it was about like these these, you know, Smurfs that could transform 
into flying robotic fruit. Like uh, I think Optimus Pineapple was the leader, and it was just uh, it was it was a little ridiculous. But that was probably the one I'm most proud of out of all the ones I did. This sounds amazing, and I want it <laughs> now as a thing. Um, for you, like, when did you decide that you were going to make your first official comic book? Because that's not where your career started. No, no. I when I when I got into college, I remember my dad. My dad's an immigrant, and he he sat me down, and he basically said, not in so many words, but but this was the subtext of what he was saying. He was basically like, "I worked super hard to make it in this country, so you better not f this up, right?" And and what he meant by that was, I had to become a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. So I, I became a I majored in computer science. I minored in creative writing, so I did a minor for myself. But my major was, a lot of it was for my dad. And then after I graduated, I became a software developer for a little bit. And then I became a high school computer science teacher. So around that time, around the time that I transitioned from software development to to teaching high school was when I started making comics. And back then, like, 90s was not a good time for American comics. You know, uh, what I remember is that Marvel Comics had declared bankruptcy. I remember there was a lot of talk at conventions about whether or not Marvel would even exist in a decade. And nowadays we know that had a super happy ending. But back then it was really iffy. So it didn't seem like it was a viable career path. And I just made a decision. I'm going to make comics as a way of like it it would be my hobby it would be like my a vocation you know so some people play golf to relax i would make comics to relax and it didn't matter if the entire industry collapsed i would still make these comics so that that's kind of how i went into it as an adult and the very first comic that i did was a self published comic called gordon yamamoto and the king of the geeks is about a young man who gets a spaceship stuck inside his nose and he becomes friends with the alien living inside the ship they can't see it but my whole face <laughs> is just like lit up on this entire concept because there is such a unique place for someone who creates the stories but also illustrates them and draws them and brings them to life. Like, what was the goal that you had in telling the stories that you told? Well, I I do think that because comics is a visual medium, you do get kind of a leg up, at least in the beginning, if you do both, right? If you're both an artist and a writer, you can kind of do the whole thing yourself. And and that was one of the the things that appealed to me most about comics early on was it just felt really intimate. It felt like anything I wanted to do, as long as I didn't care about money, anything I wanted to do, I could do. It was just like what I was doing in fifth grade. I could just draw it. I could print it up. I could take it to my local comic book convention and sell it by hand. You know, I wouldn't sell a lot, but at least what was produced would be exactly what I wanted. And I think like when you look at um, when you look at a lot of the writers that are working today, you know, um, who are known primarily as writers, a lot of them also draw. So Greg Pak, who does, you know, a billion different books for Marvel Comics, he, he's actually a pretty good artist. You know, he kind of hides it, but he's actually a pretty good artist. And and Brian Michael Bendis as well started off as uh, both a, a writer and an artist. My advice to people, especially if they want to become a comic book writer, is even if you feel like you suck at drawing, try drawing. You know, it, like it gets you into thinking about your comic in a visual way. Even if you don't feel satisfied with the drawings that you're actually doing, what happens in your brain is more important. The actual act of putting pencil to paper will force your brain to think in a more visual way. 
I love it. So, you know, now I'm curious because we've talked about fifth grade Jean sitting at the cafeteria table writing comic books um, about half Transformer, half Smurfs, uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, collecting comics. Like, what would you say to, like, your 13-year-old self now that you're out here writing the stuff that you grew up really loving? I, I mean, now that I've been in the creative life for a while, I do get where my parents are coming from. You know, it's, it is hard. It is, it's like, I, I feel like I've been super lucky in my career. Lots of low probability things have happened for me. But, but even with all that stuff, there is still a certain sense of instability. You know, even, even where I am right now, even I've been doing it for a long time, there's still a certain sense of instability. There's still this moment every January where you look at your year and you're not totally sure how much money you're going to make. So I get it. I get where my parents are coming from. But I also think you just got to do it, right? No matter what the risk, you've got to do it because if you don't do it, if you don't at least try, you're going to die unsatisfied. I mean, but you tried and it was a big, like American born Chinese becomes a big deal. Yeah. Could you ever, ever imagine no. the success no. of that? No, book? it was crazy. That was, that was crazy. I mean, that's, that's the thing though. I, th- I actually think that if I had, you know, it, like if I had put out that book, it was a full color graphic novel, which was kind of my goal. And, you know, nobody read it. I kind of felt like I could have moved on to something else and felt okay about it. You know, like, like that was what I really wanted was to get a book out. All, all the other stuff just felt like icing. Getting the book out was was the main thing. And and I think after that, like I, I really loved being a high school teacher. I could have been a high school teacher after, like just for the rest of my career after that. And I think I would have been fine. But I had to get that book out. Like if I had not tried to get a comic out, I think I would have, I think I would have died really unhappy with myself. So what does it look like? At the, so you're teaching at this point. What made you decide this story was the story you were going to tell? I, I, for American Born Chinese, I felt like I had to talk about my cultural heritage in a, or my relationship to my cultural heritage in a really direct way. Because up until that point, I'd had, I'd done a bunch of comics with uh, Asian or Asian American main characters, but it was never central to the story. And it, just, it felt like I had, there was something I had to work out on the page, you know? And I was working full time while I was doing it, so it took me five years to get 200 pages done. And when it came out, it was just, there's no way. There's no way. That's like one of those low probability things that I was talking about that just happened. That was just crazy. So it gets out, awards, goes big. What is the response that you get? Because I feel like this is a type of response. Like this is a type of book that actually gets a response. Like fans will write and people will comment. Like what's the response that you immediately get from your community on the book? Yeah, I um I mean overall it was it was really positive. I after that I got to go to different school communities. I mean I still do. I, I go to these different school communities and library communities to talk about the book and to talk about the themes of the book. And and it seems like especially immigrants' kids, like a, a lot of students whose parents uh, are new to the country, regardless of where their parents are from, they'll come up and they'll talk to me about the themes of the book and, and how even though the details are different, a lot of the emotional realities are, are the same. And that's been really gratifying as well. That's been great. 
For you, what do you think is most important about telling superhero stories in the way that you tell them? Like, for instance, The Shadow Hero, which was a really cool project, which I'd love to talk about how that developed. But like for you, like, why is it important to tell them in the way from the perspective that you bring to the books? You you know, I um I, I do think that there is something uh like really american about superheroes even when you're t- when you're dealing with a, a superhero like shang chi who's born in china i think you know that the whole idea of uh superheroes is is rooted i think in american culture so superheroes came about in the 1930s and they kind of came of age as america was taking its place on the global stage as as a superpower so i think superheroes at their best, express America at its best, you know. And and I th- I think some of the the push right now that we're seeing to see a diversity of superheroes, at least in this country, is we want to see that anybody can be an American, regardless of race, gender, sexual orientation, anything. We want to see anybody can be an American, right? Anybody can be a hero. Anybody can be a superhero. And and with Shang Chi in particular, you know, he is an immigrant so he he like in the original origin story he comes as an adult and he really finds his identity apart from his family he finds his identity as a superhero here in america so we we want to play with that idea as well i also think like superheroes it's not they're not just american superheroes are rooted in the american immigrants experience because you know all of almost all of our major superheroes were created by these children of immigrants. There's also, I mean, there, like lots of people have made this argument, right? That that superheroes are essentially modern mythology. So instead of Zeus and Hera, we have Spider-Man and, and Hulk, you know, and, and Captain Marvel. And I, I think there really is something about that. Like when we see ourselves reflected in myth, it helps us take our own lives and our own choices a little bit more seriously, I think. Uh, and, and I think that's why it's so important for us to make sure every part of our society is reflected in the myths that we construct. Which is interesting because now I want to turn back to the shadow hero. How did that even develop? Like, where where do you even start with that concept? Well, a, a friend of mine sent me a link, actually. His name is uh, Derek Kirk Kim. He's a fantastic artist. Uh, recently, he worked... Uh, in animation. So he did a bunch of stuff for Disney and and for Cartoon Network. But uh, years ago, he sent me this link from a blog that would feature these really obscure characters from the golden age of comics. You know, most of these characters, the vast majority of them are in public domain now because the companies that published them are now defunct. So one of those characters, his name is the Green Turtle, and he was created by a guy named Chu Hing, who was one of the first Chinese Americans working in the American comic book industry. The Green Turtle is not an awesome character. He's kind of like a Batman ripoff. So he operates out of a turtle cave. He flies around on a turtle plane. But the interesting thing about him is that there was this rumor about his, you know, about how he was created. And the rumor is that Chu Hing, his creator, wanted him to be Chinese American, but his publishers wouldn't let him do it. So Chu Hing does a super passive aggressive thing. He draws these early Green Turtle comics so that you never see the character's face. And supposedly the rumor is that he did this so that he and his reader could imagine his character as he originally intended. 
because the Green Turtle is not a popular character at all, we never find out if he actually is Chinese American. We never even find out his origin story. So I teamed up with a friend of mine named Sunny Liu, amazing artist, and, and we created an origin story for him. And we were able to do that. We were able to create this origin story for the Green Turtle because the Green Turtle is in public domain. But it was it was a ton of fun to do. I mean, it was the same kind of stuff that I like. I I, I got to do a lot of research about you know 1930s and 40s Chinatown because that's where it's set uh, into the Tong Wars, which are these these gang wars that happen in the early 1900s in in Chinatown, and it was fun. It was super fun to do. I love it, and I love the fact you you literally gave a superhero his identity. <laughs> yeah, it felt like this hole, you know, in comic book like history it's super obscure he's a super obscure character but it still felt like a hole to me and i I wanted sunny and i wanted to fill it i've been privy to some of your scripts which is amazing because i can see that kind of influence that you're putting there on actually having an understanding of what the concept is in your head as you're writing the dialogue you know but i also see a very strong pairing of reference in traditional and historical not just imagery, but narratives. What inspires you to pair that kind of stuff? Because you've, you've actually rooted some of the stories you've told in historical events before. Yeah, I think um, I, I kind of hated history when I was a kid. And I think it's because, I mean, no disrespect, but I think it's because I mostly had terrible uh, history teachers, you know? Um, and, and as an adult, I started reading books about history and, and at that school where I used to teach computer science, the history department was just super strong, you know, and as a computer guy, sometimes I get called into these history classes to help with some kind of computer issue. And I would just sit there and listen to them lecture. Like there was um, w- one of the teachers name is Mr. Green. He teaches African-American history. There was uh, another one named Ms. Sussman who taught Holocaust history. And I would go in there and like do tech support. And after I was done, I'd just sit there to listen. Because history is just really about human beings. You know, I think when history is taught well, it's about human beings, why human beings do what we do. And, um, and history is both like this fantasy world that is completely different from our world. Like the way they lived back in the day, it was just completely different from how we live. But at the same time, like all of the human emotions and motivations are all super recognizable. So I actually think there's a lot in common between like writing a story that's set in Asgard and writing a story that's set in like turn of the century China, you know? Like in both of those cases, it feels super fantastic to us as modern Americans. But at the same time, if the story's going to work, you're going to have to understand all of those human emotions and human motivations. Why do you feel storytelling is so important? I, th- I think it's a conversation about being a human being. You know, like all of the stories that we tell, it's just the, this conversation that we're having. Um, and with the release of each new comic, with each new movie, with each new book, we're just adding to this conversation about what it means to be a human being. So to, to get to do comics, I think is a way of participating in that conversation. Um, And I I feel incredibly privileged. I actually feel super lucky to be involved in comics right now, too. I know this particular year has been really difficult, but but comics as a whole, uh, my feeling is that more people than ever are, are reading them. They might not be reading in the same format as I did when I was a kid. But nowadays, you know, when I go to a school and I talk to a whole class, pretty much every kid in that class reads comics or graphic novels in some 
format, you know? Whereas when I was a kid in my fifth grade class, it was like out of 30 kids, maybe there'd be five that would read comics. Are there stories that you're just excited to tell? Because like I can feel the energy that you have about actually writing and telling and doing this work. Is there like a sweet spot for you, a story that you're just, that you're like, yeah, this is my jam. This is what I want to do. Yeah, I, I am actually really excited about uh, the Shang-Chi miniseries that I'm doing with Marvel. I, I think in general, the reason why I'm excited about it is because it kind of fits like the stuff I like to explore. I have a friend who is a young adult uh, novelist, and she says that at the center of the YA like age demographic space is this equation, and the equation is power plus belonging equals identity. Like when when people find out where their power is from, when they find out uh, where they belong then they can build an identity, right? And, and I kind of think that that's sort of, that's what I like. I think that's, that's something that I really struggled with when I was a kid. I struggled with feeling powerless. I struggled with feeling like I didn't belong. And as I got older, as I became an adult, I kind of tried to figure those pieces out. I'm still, still working on it, but I feel like I, I figured it out way better than I did when I was like 13. And I think that's what I'm drawn to. Any, any kind of story where it has that dynamic in the middle of it. That's really interesting because you chose for the first, like, this is a story. Look, I'm very clear. Shang-Chi has a very complicated family yes, history. Yes, he does. And you intentionally <laughs> decided that you were going to write about his family. Um, yeah. So either you truly love a challenge or, like, it's exactly what you just said. I, like, I see that sense of understanding identity and where we come from and, and all of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think family is, it's central to who Shang-Chi is. It's central to his original origin story, right? I, I'll, I'll be honest. I was not a Shang-Chi fan when I was a kid. Um, I uh, did not read, I don't know if I read any Shang-Chi comics as a kid. I did read them as a young adult, like when I was in my 20s. But I don't think I read any Shang-Chi comics as a kid. And they were definitely at my at my store, right? I remember seeing it at my local comic shop. But You know, that like I encountered those Shang-Chi comics at a time when I didn't feel comfortable being a Chinese American. So it just felt like, you know, the the Chinese American kid picking up the comic with the Chinese uh, superhero, it just felt really, it felt like I was highlighting what made me different. You know, it wasn't until I kind of worked some of that stuff out a little bit that I was able to actually pick up a Shang-Chi comic. In any case, in his original story, he started off as the son of Fu Manchu, who was like the... He's like every negative Chinese stereotype that you could think of from the turn of the century, right? There are lots of problematic elements to Shang-Chi's original origin story. But in this book, you decided to actually utilize not Fu Manchu. We're utilizing another name, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was actually innovation that came about. I think Ed Brubaker did that because Fu Manchu isn't a Marvel Comics character. It was a licensed character. My understanding from what I've read is that uh, this was the 70s. America was going through this Bruce Lee obsession. Marvel tried to get the Bruce Lee license and was not able to do it. So Marvel went after the the next most well-known Chinese character at the time, which was Fu Manchu. And they were able to get it. So they created Shang-Chi as like a like a ancillary character to Fu Manchu, who was had been popular for for decades by then. Uh, And then once once Marvel lost the license, they had to create a different name for him. 
And, and the backstory now is because Marvel doesn't do these hard reboots, right? Like other superhero universes. The idea is that Shang-Chi's father will just use lots of different names, you know, and, and go through lots of different identities because he's been alive for a very I long mean, time. I mean, he's basically a vampire. Oh, well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's a little bit he has he has bits of that in him for sure yeah yeah absolutely yeah yeah so we do play with that a little bit too we play with um overlap between like vampires and this chinese like legendary monster called the Jiangxi. we wanted to make it a more international book for sure and you know, the, the Chinese diaspora, just like the diasporas of, of a bunch of other cultures, right? We kind of landed everywhere in the world. Beyond that, though, uh, we, we rooted, and this is a little bit spoiler, but I'm going to say it anyways. But we did root some of Shang-Chi's father's origin in the, the Boxer Rebellion, which was a war that was fought on Chinese soil at the turn of the century. And it was really the first war, the first conflict that involved both Western and Eastern nations. So it was China and, and Russia and England and France and, uh, and Japan was involved. A whole bunch of different countries were involved. So because that was a, a significant milestone in the life of Shang-Chi's father, he eventually creates ties with all of these countries that were involved in that conflict. And one of them is Russia. Another one is, is France. So part of the story will take place in France. Another one is England. Part of the story takes place in England. Yeah, which I think is also, it's so cool because this is not the first time you've written about the Boxer Rebellion, correct? Yeah, yeah. I did a, I did a two-volume graphic novel called Boxers and Saints, which is all about the Boxer Rebellion. I spent a ton of time researching that book, uh, in part because I just found it so fascinating. You know, the, the Boxer Rebellion, I didn't really know anything about from my own time in high school history class. But when I looked into it, it was kind of a, it was like a foreshadowing of all the stuff that happened in the 20th century. You know, it was kind of a foreshadowing of both world wars. It was a foreshadowing of media because the Boxer Rebellion was the very first conflict that people would follow in their local newspapers on a daily basis. All, all the stuff I just found fascinating. I wasn't able to fit it all in Boxers and Saints, so I took some of that stuff and I stuck it into Shang-Chi. I'm actually very happy you did because I feel like you also... And what I'm gathering kind of from this conversation, which is why I love having these kind of conversations, is do you feel like the work that you do now is the work that you wish you would have seen on the spinner racks when you were a kid? Yeah, I think a lot of us do that. I think a lot of us who uh, create not just comics, but in, any kind of story, we are trying to tell stories that we wanted to see. We're, we're almost like we're writing stories for um, 13 year old us or kids that are like 13-year-old us, you know? Uh, and, and that definitely is, is true for me. I remember reading uh, a long time ago, one of my favorite uh, creators is, is Dwayne McDuffie, who's no longer with us. You know, he's the creator, one of the creators of the, of the uh, Milestone universe, and he did a bunch of stuff for both Marvel and DC. I still have damage control somewhere in a long box somewhere. But he talked to, I remember reading an interview and him talking about encountering Black Panther for the very first time and how it kind of, something clicked inside of him when, when it did. And it wasn't, it wasn't just, like the way he described it, it wasn't just because of that one character. It was because when you opened up that book, people who look like him 
were everything. They were the hero. They were the sidekick. They were the villain. They were the you know the doctors. They were the the side characters. They were the love interest. It was everybody. Whereas I don't think that was necessarily true of a of a Shang Chi comic back then, right? When you opened a Shang Chi comic, it was Shang Chi, and a lot of the story was about just how he was so different from everyone else around him. You know, he talked different. He talked like a fortune cookie. He acted different, and a, a lot of a lot of the quote unquote appeal of Shang Chi was that he people looked at him and were like, whoa, that's kind of weird. That was that was the whole thing. So and I was gonna say you don't shy away from talking about that in the comic though. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to make a bridge between again, it, because Marvel doesn't do these hard reboots, right? They don't reset their universe entirely. Um, some part of what happened before has to stay in play at all times. So I wanted to build a bridge between the way he used to talk and the way we want him to talk now. And, and all, all of that kind of stuff, like feeling like an outsider. We, we, like, I want the story in the five issues to be him going from being kind of weird and feeling like he's an outsider to, to figuring out where he belongs. And I think that's interesting. And it's funny that you mentioned Dwayne because Dwayne, Dwayne wrote the one shot for Monica Rambeau, which for me is that character for like for me. Because we, we uh-huh. had Storm. I love Storm. Storm is great. Monica Rambeau was from New Orleans. She was African-American and she was the leader of the Avengers. And it was something to be able to see that and to see her parents and to see where she came from and to see the work that she did to be an Avenger, right? Like there was this idea of power and possibility that comes from having that moment. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I, I, I mean, I actually have a, um, I actually have a set of these little, uh, like die cast figures of these different Marvel superheroes, and she's one of them. I got this like in the 1980s, and she's one of them. You know, it was like it was like Spider Man and Hulk and Captain America, and it was when she was, um, she was Captain Marvel, right, with the with the black and white, or, or I guess it was black and silver suit. And I remember seeing that when I was a kid and I don't, I don't even think I could fully articulate it, but there is something about that, right? Like, like there's a, there's a reason why the children of immigrants of all different kinds of cultures gravitated towards Bruce Lee, right? Even if they didn't look like Bruce Lee, there was something about the fact that he looked different from all the other heroes at the theater that appeals to you. I think that was, that was Captain Marvel for me when I was a kid. It's pretty incredible. And, and for your work and how you're doing it, like, do you feel like, like, how did you research? How did you prep? How did you bring this together? Because I know I kind of mentioned you do drop some Easter eggs to some of the history and the origins of Shang-Chi in this series. Yeah, I mean, I, part, part of it is I work with it. I got to work with an awesome team. So um, Darren Shan is the editor. He um, started off by giving me a whole bunch of homework. He, he sent me a whole bunch of PDFs of all these old Shang-Chi comics and also more recent ones, too. He, he sent me the um, Secret Avengers miniseries, which I really enjoyed that um, was centered around Shang-Chi's family. Uh, and then, um, and then I, I get to work with uh, DK Ruan and um, and Philip Tan and Philip Tan especially. He um, he is kind of a amateur Chinese historian. So a lot of times, if some kind of a, a historical thing comes up and I need to ask somebody, I'll just shoot him an email. He he just he really knows his stuff. So I, I definitely relied on him. And and both he and um, DK, you know, they have very different styles, 
but I feel like they each, you can just tell they really care about what they're drawing. You know, like DK, I, I think his strengths are in, um, in conveying emotion and, um, and also drawing action scenes so that they feel like they're going super fast. You know, <laughs> like it's still on the page, but it feels fast. And then, um, and then Phil, Philip, he, um, he does all of our flashback scenes. And I think he brings that authenticity that he actually knows because he's such a student of Chinese history. He brings that into his pages. You could really see it in just the details that he includes. It is really amazing because, you know, I always say that comic books are a team sport, right? And this yeah. is... This is multiple artists as a team on a book with a person who is also an artist. So how was it for you? Like, I wouldn't say being in the passenger seat, but being in the co-driver's seat for this piece of work. Yeah, I, I think it was great. I, 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 uh, I give all the props to, to Darren for, uh, you know, assembling a team. I really am thankful that he invited me to be a part of the team. And I think... Um, I think it just it's a passion project for everybody who's involved. So um, Jimmy Chung, who is a superstar artist, you know, Young Avengers and a, a bunch of other stuff. Um, he designed Shang-Chi's brand new suit. He spent a lot of time, like he really wanted to find this balance between traditional Chinese elements and like more Marvel superhero elements. And I think he, he landed on uh, on such a great spot. So all of that stuff, you know, like I, I feel like everybody's passion is very apparent on the page with this project. Well, I know a lot of kids are going to pick up this comic and a lot of adults are going to pick up this comic. But for those who have not had a chance to read has already hit the shelves. Can you give us like a synopsis of the Shang-Chi miniseries? Yeah, so Shang-Chi, before this miniseries, has been in America for a long time. He's been a part of the Avengers. He's friends with, you know, Captain America and Iron Man. And what this story is about is how his family tries to pull him back in. So he has a family that's pretty dysfunctional. Um, we introduce you to a whole bunch of his siblings that we've never met before. And um, each of these siblings is actually rooted in an Eastern element, uh, we don't totally make that explicit in the book, but if you look for it, you'll see it. Like if you're familiar with traditional Chinese medicine, you'll see that each of the each of his uh, siblings is kind of rooted in a different element within traditional Chinese medicine. So I'm hoping that it's an introduction to Shang-Chi as a character. It's an introduction to Chinese American uh, culture. And it's also an introduction to his family, to like, how we all struggle with like broken family dynamics, right? So that'll be a part of what this story is about. What are the things, when you say Chinese American culture, what were you like, this has to be in the book? <laughs> well, what, yeah, what, I mean, one of the things is the language. Like I really wanted to, I wanted to transition Shang-Chi from the way he talked in like the comics from the 1970s to the way to like the way we want him to talk now because we want him to be more of a of a three-dimensional character but i also wanted to do it in a way that was somewhat respectful of the the continuity right so that was definitely one thing um another thing that i really wanted in was all of the different cultures you know to have different parts of the book take place in different geographical locations awesome also crystal cakes I mean, that's... And crystal cakes. That's right. That's right. It's very important. <laughs> it's I, I love important. the fact that that is a... Like, baking and... I, 
do you like bread? I'm just, I'm just, because I feel I, like that is a very. <laughs> I do like bread. I do like bread. Bread doesn't always like me, but I definitely like bread for sure. Yeah, yeah. And like going to the bakery at uh, Chinatown, we used to go up to Chinatown probably about once a week. We'd go almost every weekend and, and going to that bakery in Chinatown, it just brings back a lot of uh, childhood memories to me. So I wanted a scene set in a Chinese bakery, which happens in the first book. And I love the fact that you used a reference point from like your actual lived experience to bring that to the book. Yeah, that's the easiest kind of research is the research where it's already in your memory. <laughs> it's like, do I need to go visit that bakery again and yeah. pick up some more bread just to know <laughs> I got yeah. the details right? Yeah, yes. yeah, just I got to eat a dozen of something. Oh, my uh, being from Louisiana, my research is probably far worse than any bread. <laughs> in the world. Or maybe far tastier, you mean. Mm. Not far worse, far tastier. <laughs> well, I am so excited for folks to get their hands on this book. It's so much fun. And it's really, really cool to see Shang-Chi in another light. And also very, very interesting family dynamics. Well, thank you. Thank you, Angelique. Thanks for reading it. And thanks for talking to me. This was super fun. Thank you again to Jean for being such a huge part of Marvel's Voices and contributing to the upcoming anthology, Marvel's Voices Identity Number 1, available wherever you get your comic books August 25th. And thank you for tuning in to our season finale. Now, our season is over, but we will be back. So stay tuned for the next season of Marvel's Voices. And in the meantime, I'm not going anywhere. Make sure you check out Women of Marvel, which I also co-host with the amazing Ellie Pyle and Judy Stevens. We will be back for our fall 2021 season in just a few weeks. Marvel's Voices is produced by me, Angelique Rocher, Alexis Williams, and Isabel Robertson. Our creative producer is Harry Goh. Our development manager is Brad Barton. Our production manager is Larissa Rosen. And our executive producer is Jill Duboff. Our theme music was composed and performed by Kamal Wainaina.